Thanks very much, brother. Uh, I am aware that there is a tipping point at any conference at which point you, you, you kind of just dial out and say, I'm not listening to any more. Um, and you can be present in a room in body, but not in mind and spirit. I'd urge you to fight against that. Um, we've got two more main sessions to go, um, and I think the Lord is going to speak from both of them. The reason I can say it with confidence is because the Bible is going to be preached. Um, and so every time the Bible is preached, the Lord um, is speaking. Um, and so I would encourage you just to stay connected. And then you've got one more breakout as well. And we've got a wonderful lunch in between. So just kind of fight the fog, fight the fatigue, stay in, stay dialed in. It's a rare opportunity to get us all together in one room, uh, and I pray that we make the most of it. Just so grateful to have you all of, here, uh, all of you here. And so on behalf of Princeton Bible Church, um, it's been a wonderful blessing to be able to, to serve you and host you. Um, I hope you have felt well-loved. I hope you have uh, been well-fed, um, and I hope you have felt well-looked after um, in this place because it's been a joy to serve you all. When we chose the speaker lineup for the conference, we wanted it to reflect the diversity that we speak of, and not just racially and ethnically, but also in terms of style. And so we got Papa Steve um, with his centuries of knowledge and wisdom and sartorial elegance um, that he has been bringing uh, to bear upon this place. We got Pastor Leon B. Crump Jr. <laughs> with his passion and eloquence and his James Earl Jones voice. The dude could read the phone book and people would get saved. Um, <laughs> then we've got the prophetic freestyler, Sibsabunda, who just set the place on fire last night and exhorted us to live more now like we will then in our lives and in our churches. And now you've got me, um, a white South African Bible nerd from the suburbs who has never planted a church and who exists in a world of deep privilege and realizes that he has inherited a great deal of that privilege through illegitimate means, through systemic injustice committed by my forefathers upon this great land. But there's a tremendous tension in me as well as I say that because I still feel like an African son. I still feel like this continent is in my bones and in my soul. And so instead of running away from that systemic prejudice that gave me illegitimate levels of privilege, I intend to serve out the rest of my days serving the cause of the gospel in this great continent for its great people, for the great cause of Jesus Christ. Why don't you turn with me to Ephesians 3 um, from verse 14. We're going to go. Leon's left us at Ephesians 3.13 saying, don't lose heart. Now, the reason Paul felt that it was necessary to say that is because there were reasons for the, for the Ephesians to lose heart. And the reason that the Spirit has kept that preserved for us in the Scriptures is because there are reasons for us as ministers of the gospel in our own context to lose heart. If you spend any amount of time in meaningful ministry at whatever level of influence, from church leaders to, to small group leaders to one-on-one -on -one discipleship to just trying to disciple and lead your family, you will know that in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you get front row seats to the best and worst of humanity. You get to stand at the top of aisles as people say their vows, but you also get to be the first one to be called when those vows are broken. You get called to hospital wards when new life enters the world, and you get called to hospital wards as life departs from this world. But the longer you spend in ministry, 
you realize that most of it is gonna be continual daily exposure to obvious evidence of the fall of man. It will be abundantly clear to you if you lead for more than two minutes that the world out there is fallen, that people are living under the curse of sin, and that they do continual sinful things. It will be abundantly clear to you that the people that you lead are fallen. There are gonna be wolves amongst the sheep, but even the sheep are gonna struggle. They're not gonna wanna follow most days, and they're gonna frustrate you a great deal because they're fallen. And you're gonna get daily exposure to the fact that you yourself, as a minister of the gospel, are very fallen. You're not gonna do the things you preach again and again. And then you're gonna feel a great deal of guilt because God's still gonna call you to preach and still gonna call you to minister and still gonna call you to lead and you're gonna feel disqualified most days. If you don't, you're not paying attention. It can be really, really discouraging. And it can lead many into a quiet faithlessness in the power and effectiveness of the gospel. We can be ministers of the gospel and not believe in its power or effect primarily because we don't experience its power or ongoing effect in our own lives. Let's just be honest. If you're a big believer in the sovereignty of God, and you must be, and you must be, it will at times actually feel like God is working against you in your ministry and in your own quest of sanctification and in your efforts to lead others. If you are if you're thinking about the sovereignty of God, you will be wondering why the heck he makes it so hard most days. At times, we will even doubt whether he wants what is best for us and for our families and for our churches. We will lose heart. At times, we will feel like Christian ministry is too hard, but more secretly at times, we will feel like Christian life is too hard like faith and glory and wonder just don't feel like appropriate responses to the things that you see, feel, and experience. It was last week. Um, so, so you guys get to roll in to BBC. You see nice building, nice facility, nice staff. Um, they've been on their best behavior. They've been wonderful. <laughs> and, and you realize I didn't even plant this thing. Um, and so I've been building on the labors of others. And you might walk in and you go like, I want that kid's job. In the suburbs here, look at the houses surrounding this place. Are one of those his manse? No. <laughs> no. We're working on it, but no. <laughs> but ministry in whatever context is gonna expose you to the sheer brutality of the fallenness of man. This last week, I left a meeting with a family in such deep distress that I could barely prevent myself from throwing up. And it's one of many that we're dealing with at the moment. And I pulled over to the side of the road on Jan Smets Avenue down here in Johannesburg, which if you know is an act of faith. Um, <laughs> but full of faith and quite content for Jesus to take me home. I pulled over to the side of the road without even indicating. 
and I cried out through my sunroof because I like the African sun on me, but I know that no good pastor can drive a convertible. And I cried out through my sunroof at God. What do you want from me? What do you want from us? How am I supposed to speak the glory and the wonder of the gospel into lives that are completely broken? And then at the same time explain to them that you are sovereign, so you oversaw every last minute of the whole thing. What do you want? And I got home and for the first time, just this last week, you guys were, hadn't registered yet, thanks for registering last minute. So I thought we were, we were flying people in from all over the world and no one was coming. Um, I thought it was gonna be a BBC staff meeting with Timmis and Crump um, and it was gonna be fun. But I got home and I said to you, first time in my life, I actually, I, I don't actually think I can do this anymore. Uh, I think we need to sit the elders down. I think I wanna do something else. I should have studied accounts. <laughs> and I got home, I opened my Bible on my desk. I knew I should be prepping for this week and I had Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. And I started to look through Paul's prayer and none of it was speaking to me. Is that okay? I know the word is living and active and it's my hard heart in the way. But as I'm reading through it, I'm going like, this isn't helping me right now. And then I got to verse 20. And it's like it leapt off the page. You ever felt that? And verse 20 is the benediction at the end of Paul's prayer. And it says this. Remember, I'm asking, what do you want from me? What do you want from our churches? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And I felt the Spirit of God saying to me, not in an audible voice, but as real as I could feel it, that's what I want from you. That's what I have for you. That's what's going on in the life of the church. So let's just break it down. Let's just chat through it very quick because we read those things, benedictions. The church has been reading them for 2,000 years. That's how we close out gatherings. We're used to them. Let's just, let's just stop for a sec. Let's just, let's just let it breathe. Let's just let it speak. Now to him who is able to do far more. I mean, look at that, far more abundantly. He doesn't just say more, he doesn't just say far more, he says far more abundantly. As an English teacher, I would say like, Paul, that's ridiculous, ridiculous redundance, what are you doing? But he's trying to explain to us, it's, it's far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. So just stop. God is able to do more than we can ask or think. Regardless of what we are seeing in our own lives, regardless of our own rebellion, regardless of our, our, our own disgusting levels of secret sin, regardless of the brokenness of our people, God is able to do much more than we can ask or think. Paul believes, listen, that God isn't waiting to squash you, that God isn't waiting to squash your church, and that God isn't standing off as a cruel and capricious father hoping he can give you less. He wants to give more of himself to the church, more than, we can even, more than we even think we're allowed to ask for. 
Now stop, now in Africa, I know where this will go. It'll go to the, the home, and to the car, and to the wife, and to the prestige. He can give me more than I can think to ask for. But, but, but what does it say next? According to the power at work within us. And so, so let's look at it again. God is able to do much more than we can ask or think by working powerfully within us. Not by working powerfully outside of us in circumstantial trinkets that will pass away, but by working powerfully within the hearts of his people. The work is more a work that is within us than is something done external to us or for us. Paul uses dunamis, the power of God. And he says, listen, we're going to get back to this. It is already at work in the life of the believer. And there's more of it available than you can ask or think. All right, and then what is he going to say? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And so God is able to do more than we can ask or think by working powerfully within us for his glorious name. When people ask me what's the big theme of the Bible, what kind of bumbles out of me is the glory of God. Everyone wants the big theme of the Bible to be the love of God, but the love of God is part of his glorious, glorious nature. The glory of God seems to be the thing that is spoken of on every page. And whenever people encounter it, there is awe, repentance, humility, and worship. We need to remember the size and scope and majesty of our glorious king. Friends, we exist for God. He doesn't exist for us. Our churches exist for God. Their circumstances exist for God. He doesn't need us. He's absolutely self-satisfied. He wants us and loves us, and that is better by far. Now, some people think that if we say that the purpose of our church and the purpose of our lives is God's glory, it minimizes in some way our role, but it really doesn't. Listen, God allows us, this is scandalous, God allows us to live somehow in some mysterious way by his incredible power and grace in such a way that builds his reputation amongst the nations. He's trusting us in a way with his name. He calls us to live for that divine purpose. That is him, friends, lovingly calling you out of self-obsession into something much more meaningful and glorious than you could ever imagine. All right. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen, God is able to do much more than we can ask or think by working powerfully within us for his glory on a time scale that we cannot even begin to imagine. This thing goes on throughout all generations. We sit here as recipients of this great work. I mean, we saw it on video yesterday. This started with a handful of people in one tiny region of the world, and it's been passed on and on and on and on. In the life of successive generations of believers, uh, God has passed on his faithfulness and the power of the gospel in difficult circumstances, and as a result, it still goes forward today. What some would refer to today as a bronze-aged bronze belief in the supernatural should have died out centuries ago, and it hasn't. Why? God is at work in the lives of his people, even if it looks like he isn't. And he is extending their legacy, that powerful work within them beyond their lifespan. There's some gifted people in the room. 
I've met a lot of you. I'm, I'm astonished by who, by who God has gathered together over these last two days. But even for the most gifted in the room, everything you work so hard for will begin to decay the day they put you in a box in the ground. Hmm? But the work of God within you can be multiplied out beyond your lifetime <laughs> so that future generations too can be recipients of this great gospel. So do not lose heart. That's what God wants. Okay. How? How? How do we get from we've lost heart to this great benediction? Well, Paul has a prayer in between. And he prays this for the church in Ephesus. And I want to pray this for the people gathered here today. I want to take us through this. There's four things in particular that Paul prays for that church so they do not lose heart and so that they go on to live for the glory and fame of Jesus Christ throughout all generations. Amen. All right, here we go, verse 14. For this reason, what's the reason? Do not lose heart, right? Verse 13, do not lose heart. And so because of that, because Paul thinks they're gonna, okay? So I don't want you to lose heart. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the first thing Paul prays. Paul prays for inner strength in the lives of the believers. We should be praying that we would be inwardly strengthened through the power of the Spirit. Listen, I don't know about you, but I usually feel like I don't have the power to live this faithful life. Especially because every Sunday, people insist on putting me behind a pulpit so that I supposedly tell them how to do it. And the gap between what I say and how I feel is large at times. And I feel like I don't have that power of God in my inner being. Paul prays that the Ephesians wouldn't feel like that. That they would feel God's dynamos, from which we get the word dynamite. Now, it would be an anachronism to say that, 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 that it means the same as dynamite, that it means something blowing up, because they didn't have dynamite. All right, but it is interesting that when they had to find a word for dynamite for something that blew up in a big way, they went for dynamos. All right, you know that thing in the lives of believers? This thing that blows houses up is a bit like that. It's a bit like that. Is that true in your life and in your ministry? Now, when we think of God's power, I know this. We straight away get into a whole bunch of pneumatology. We want to get into a whole bunch of arguments of how, how the Spirit works in the churches today because we automatically think of things exterior to, to ourselves. We think of the, the gifts for the church. We think of the, the visibly miraculous and, and how we long to experience that. Now, that is all true. But Paul prays that the Ephesians would experience miraculous power in stuff that will never be seen in their inner man. Paul is concerned with what is going on away from the public eye. He is concerned with who we are when no one is watching. That's where he wants God's power to be applied. 
Friends, if you're like me, I don't want to assume you are. But we unfortunately seem more, well, I, I, let's do that. I unfortunately seem more concerned with an appearance of godliness than with actual godliness. Many of us are more concerned with our reputations than we are with our righteousness. Paul says, no, no, I want power applied to your inner man. Not with how you appear to others. Not with public gifting. With who you are. We want everyone to appear okay. We want ourselves to appear okay. Even when we publicly show we're not okay, we want to do that in a way so that people go, oh, look how humble he is. He also struggles, right? Even that is self-serving. Paul wants us to be properly victorious in the inner man. He wants us to have power, not power to do mainly miraculous things. Maybe that's true. He wants that as well. But in this text, what he's saying is, I want you to have God's dynamos to persevere when you feel like quitting. I want you to have God's dynamos to resist when you feel like sinning. I want you to have God's dynamos to believe when you feel like it's all meaningless. Paul speaks about this a lot. Leon spoke about this a little earlier, but I want to push it a bit. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks about the suffering in his own life and how God is doing something in that. And he says that his outer man is wasting away and decaying while his inner man is being renewed day by day so that they mustn't lose heart. Same thing, he's encouraging them. He's saying, look at me. My exterior circumstances suck. Paul looks dreadful at that stage. Can you imagine being shipwrecked on a number of occasions and then being bitten by a poisonous viper and then having people stone you to to a point that they think is death and you don't die? Paul doesn't look good. His back's been beaten by Roman centurions. We're told that he's not handsome to start with, right? Anyone, uh, this is dangerous here because I'm going to reveal my Eurocentricity and my American obsession. I apologize, okay? Um, That's just the media that they send us from across the ocean. There was a show called Seinfeld. There was a character on there, George Costanza, the Apostle Paul. In looks, right, if historians are to be believed, And then he gets beaten, and then he gets shipwrecked, and then he gets stoned, and not in a fun way, and then he gets bitten by a snake. And the Corinthians are looking at him, and he's now in prison, they're going like, well, this can't be right. Well, this can't be right. If he had been faithful, surely this wouldn't have been happening. This can't be what the sovereignty of God looks like. And Paul goes, my outer man, wasting away. Why? My inner man is being regenerated. It's being changed. It's being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Paul seems to believe that it is possible for it to look like someone is doing badly when they're really doing well. Therefore, listen, it must be possible for people to look like they're doing well when they're really doing badly. And I think church leaders are more vulnerable to this than anyone else. If I told them, they'd fire me. If I revealed this, they'd lose respect for me. Things must work in my life because I'm trying to teach people that this gospel thing works. Now your outer self can be wasting away and your inner man 
can be becoming regenerate. How, how are you doing in your inner self? Is God's powerful dunamis at play? Or are you secretly desperate, secretly compromised, secretly faithless, while all the while trying to persuade other people to hold the faith? You know how you'll fight through that? You'll stop worrying about the outer man and you'll tell someone. You'll tell someone. This Ashley Madison saga over the last few weeks has just revealed how many pastors sin secretly but feel like they can never tell anyone. Double lives, deep fear of being caught. And the church sets it up so that when men and women are caught, what do we do? We kick them. <laughs> because we've taught them to lie for so long. Uh, friends, I, Paul is interested in the, the inner man in the church in Ephesus. I'm interested in the inner man and woman sitting in front of me right now. Tell somebody. All right, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Second thing that Paul prays. Remember, we're trying to get us to that great benediction. That, that Christ would dwell within us. Paul prays that Christ would have the authority to move in. He, he doesn't just want to give power to you. He wants to dwell within you. It's this great mystery of union with Christ. You're hidden in his righteousness, but his resurrection power wants to dwell within you. It's an incredible thing. Now listen, it's become very popular in Christian evangelical circles to speak about Jesus living in our hearts. Now, we still tell children this all the time, and I used to rebel against it, but now as I've read this verse, I realize it's okay to speak of Jesus dwelling in your hearts because it's a prayer of Paul. It's actually biblical, but it's not about salvation. It's not you making a decision to invite Jesus into your heart. This is the only biblical reference that we have to it, and it's in a prayer for people who are already in Christ. They're Christians. They believe us. And Paul says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this has baffled scholars because they wonder why Paul would, would ask that Christ would dwell in the hearts of people who are already Christians. I think it's why we do continuous altar calls, okay? I see that hand. I saw it last week. Let's just do it again, okay? Let's just make doubly sure. I need the numbers to report back to my funders, and you need some kind of feeling of eternal salvation. So put that hand up again, brother. That's not what Paul's getting at. Carson, who's smarter than any of us, apologies if you think that not to be true, you can chat to me afterwards. But dear Carson said, at first sight, it seems strange for Paul to pray that Christ may dwell in the hearts of believers. Did he not already live within them? In answer, it is noted that the focus of this request is not the initial indwelling of Christ, but on his continual presence. The verb used in this prayer is a strong one, signifying a permanent indwelling rather than some temporary abode, a permanent indwelling. Sue and I have lived in uh, various dwellings in our life. We've been blessed in our, in our married life for 10 years now to live in a few different environments. Um, and so we always 
rented because we kind of felt like citizens of the world. We find a, kind of felt like God was going to move us around, and he did. Um, and so we always rented places. Now, when you rent a place, you've got a certain relationship with the place, right? You kind of go like, it's the landlord's problem, all right? And it's not exactly how I want it, but it's okay. And can I light a fire inside? Sure. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, someone else will sort this out. Who's going to do the garden? I don't know. Um, and so uh, that's the kind of relationship you have. Now, if you're godly and Christian, you want to have a better relationship with your landlord than that. So if you are renting, that was not um, permission uh, to do that. But at some point, Sue and I were told that in order to be grown-ups, um, you had to own property. Um, and so we said, okay, not realizing that what they meant was you have to let the bank own property and you have to be their slave for the next 20 years, um, but we entered into this slavery agreement, um, even though now it seems like an astonishing thing to do, and we bought a house. Well, we let the bank buy a house for us, all right? But it feels like ours. Our names are on the title deeds. And what was interesting in the, in the, in the heart of my wife was that something switched like this. The second we got the keys, she walked in, and her posture towards where we live was completely different. I walked in going like, we can never afford this. She walked in going, that's got to go and we can put some furniture in there. I was like, furniture from where? And, and that tree, I was like, I love that tree. It's got to go. We can make changes here. Why? It's ours. It's ours. Paul prays that Christ would have the title deeds of our heart, that it wouldn't just be some kind of us and him arrangement, but that he would be the primary resident making all of the decisions, making the big calls because we are his precious possession. And how will that happen? Because some of you realize now, let's just stick with the analogy. There are rooms in the house where Christ does not have access. There are areas where you're saying, no, you cannot alter that. Just please don't touch that. How does it happen that he's able to dwell in increasing measure in the hearts of believers? What does Paul say? By faith. By faith. By faith. Now we think by faith is how I get a big church. By faith is how I get lots of bucks. By faith is how I get what I want. That's what's taught today. Paul says, by faith, you know what you get? Less of you and more of Jesus. You want to apply your faith towards something? Apply it towards that. That you would, in faith, be able to trust Christ with areas of your life that you don't currently trust him with. Apply faith to that. Second part of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in doctrine, no, in love. And doctrine teaches us love, so those, that's not a, those aren't polar opposites, or opposites but, but sometimes as pastors, we, we struggle to be rooted and grounded in love, right? That God would love us. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. Now, now why does Paul pray that? Because he knows most days you're not going to have strength to believe that God loves you. He says you're going to need strength. It's not going to come naturally to you. Why? You're unlovable. I've met some of you. I've met me. I've met me. I know the gaps between what I say and what I do. I know the gaps between how I counsel others to live and how I live. 
I struggle to believe that God would love me. And so Paul prays that we would have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays that we would know the unknowable and the unknowable is God loves wretches like you and me. But he prays that you would know it. It's almost as if Paul knows the objections that will come up to the scandalous news. And so he describes this love further in four dimensions, breadth, length, height, and depth. I don't think Paul had a poor understanding of physics. Rather, I think he had a supernatural understanding of the love of God, which is why he picks four dimensions to describe it in. It's wide. And so it's wide enough to reach us. Listen, it's wide enough to reach us no matter how far we have strayed. It's long. And so it's long enough to sustain us right through life, no matter how far and no matter how long I've been secretly sinning and living in faithlessness, it's long enough. It's high. It's high enough to reach you at your highest heights when you've preached your greatest sermon and your people think you walk on water. It's high enough to reach you even in your sinful pride. It's deep. It's deep enough to catch you when you're at your lowest low. When you're parked on the side of Jan Smuts, going like, I'm struggling to believe that you're seeking the good of these people. The love of God is deep enough for you there. No one struggles to believe this more than church leaders. We know our own hypocrisy deeply. I pray. That somehow, through the Spirit of God today, you would know and believe the unknowable. All right, second part of verse 19, let's close. This, I don't know if I can use this descriptor, but this is ridiculous. That Paul could pray this? I don't feel like I could pray this. But it's beyond what we could ask or think, right? That you, now who's he writing to? The Ephesians, sinners like you, sinners like me, but that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays that we'd be filled to the brim with God's goodness. Such a powerful image. Now listen, we get this wrong. People think, oh, all of God in me. Ah, that's amazing. And that puffs us up. No, it's all of me given over to God. We have a, a wonderful friend, a lady named Emily. She, she works in our home one day a week, but she's part of the family. We, we just love her. Um, and uh, when we went to the coast uh, last year, she said, can you bring me back some seawater? And we said, absolutely. That's kind of a Joburg tradition. When you live 600 kilometers from the sea, when you go to the sea, you want to bring some of it home with you, um, which I don't understand. Um, because 185 million liters of raw sewage are pumped into the South African oceans every day. Um, and so, but anyway, um, that aside, coastal folk. Um, but I go to the sea, not in the sea. Um, and so on the last day, Sue reminded us that we needed to get some seawater. And I said, well, off you go. I'm sending you in faith with our four-year-old son. You guys fend for yourself. I'll watch from here. Um, and so God, just don't go in the sea. I've got a covenant agreement with the sharks of the world. Um, they cannot somehow evolve and walk up on land and eat us there, um, and I won't go and revel in their area. So it works well. Um, so far, we have an incident of free agreement. 
But Sue went down um, into the water with some, um, some big bottles of water and, and she, filled, she filled it up right to the top. And we brought it home and I put it down on the counter. And I said, there we go, Emily. Nothing but the Indian Ocean, full to the brim. Now, is all of the Indian Ocean in there? No. <coughs> but it's full to the brim of the Indian Ocean. Paul prays, not that all of God would somehow inhabit us, but that all of us would be inhabited by the goodness of God. Guys, just stop for a sec. This fullness word, it's the same word that's used in Colossians 2 verse 9 to refer to Christ when it says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul prays this for the church in Ephesus. This is more than we can ask or think, right? Now this is what Sibs was saying last night. This is only fully accomplished one day, to be sure. But it must be lived out increasingly today. When was the last time you heeded the scriptural command to cry out to God in, in prayer, fill me with your Holy Spirit? Be ongoingly filled with the Spirit. Be ongoingly filled with the Spirit. Fill us, God. All right. So what do you think God wants from you? What do you think God wants from your churches? Well, he has more, more than you can ask or think. He wants to, I know it's hard to believe, but he wants to get glory in and through his son at work in you and in, and in your people. He has entrusted us with his reputation in the world in a way. He has proved his immeasurable love towards us by sending his son to die in our place so that even when we don't live this way, there is a way for us to be in communion with God. And that way is, listen, he now dwells in our hearts through faith. I, I wanna do something together now that the saints have been doing for 2,000 years. I want us to stand together and read the benediction that closed out this great chapter of scripture. So why don't you stand with me? Before we do that, I just, I just want to lead us in, in some prayer. So if you wouldn't mind just bowing your head and just being before the Lord. Father God, what a thing to be able to say. Father God, our loving dad, our sovereign Lord, both of those things absolutely and eternally. That means we can trust you. That means we can commit our lives to you, knowing that you're good and knowing that you're great. We need to know both of those things. And Father, I just, there's so much potential for ministry in this room, but there's also just so much potential for discouragement. We need mercy from your Holy Spirit, and we need the power of your wonderful, indwelling Holy Spirit to change us. Father, for some of us, we're gonna need to let the outer man waste away in the eyes of the world so that you can do your regenerating work. I pray that you give people courage to do that starting today. And for all of us, Father, 
We want to heed Paul's instructions in the scriptures to be frequently before you acknowledging our need of you expressed through the simple prayer that says, Father, we have faith. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to the fullness of God. We need you. We need you, Father. We need your power in our lives. We acknowledge that now and ask that you fill us afresh. In Jesus' name. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.